You're listening to Randall Wallace Presents, formerly Bridging the Political Gap, the number one American history podcast of 2024 by Feedspot.com. I know we're being fired upon and we all took cover. My radio man had sort of gone ahead and I could hear him cry and his body rolled over and and I went out to sort of bring him back. About the time I reached him I felt this sting in my right shoulder. I don't remember much after that. I was paralyzed from the neck down. I lost a kidney. I'd had a pulmonary embolism. I was this big hundred and 90-pound, you know, tough guy, and had a lot of other problems in the hospital, lost about 70 pounds. I was in the hospital 39 months, so most of my service is after the war ended. I can still see my mother standing at the foot of the bed, two aides getting me up, and just by chance, I looked and I saw myself. You know, I was shaken, to say the least. And I haven't looked in the mirror but twice since. Because what I saw that day scared me. a statement on his what, what he did to help me that day and he he did drag me to a safer place but I think he, he feels very guilty about that because he grabbed me by the right arm which is the one that was really really mangled pretty badly damaged and he always thought since then that maybe he made it worse I don't think he did but uh, he kind of looked over me that you can't wait if somebody's wounded you got to keep going you can't otherwise there'd be nobody fighting and I'll pick out a wounded guy and say I'll stay with him you know <laughs> But there were about four people that day, uh, three sar- four sergeants. And one came by and put morphine, uh, took my blood and put an M on my forehead, which means I had a morphine shot. Don't give him any more because it could be fatal. Uh, that was Sergeant Kuschik. Ollie Mananen, who was a world-class uh, skier, also stayed for a while. And then a young fellow named McBriar from Tennessee stayed with me a while, even though he wasn't supposed to. And about seven or nine hours later, the litter bearers came and took me down the mountain or down the hill 913 as a little more background he was wounded a week ahead of me one mountain away you know, I could have seen him if I looked for him on a binoculars and we somehow found ourselves in the same hospital and at the time I first met him he was on one of these stretches whatever you call it and he was being pushed around. He was laying on his back. Most Americans don't realize it's much more than his arm. If you open his shirt, you'll see all kinds of lines all over the place. There's scars. 
And uh, you can tell that even to this day, I think he's in constant pain, but he must have gotten used to it. Well, we got so close at, at this point because he's disabled, I'm disabled, he's got an arm problem, I got an arm problem, and I would look at his arm and he's always stiff and not doing anything. I used to tell him, why the hell don't you cut it off? And he'd look at me seriously, he said, I came in here with two arms and two legs and I'm going out of here with two arms and two legs. And just about the time I was preparing myself to leave the hospital and be civilianized. Bob was still scheduled to stay there for a little while longer. I sat down with him and had a fine talk and I said, what are your plans? <laughs> uh, but we've been friends all along. <clears throat> what was he like back then? Um, it's hard, obviously, for those of us who didn't live through that experience to imagine ourselves into into a, a facility like that. What was there? What did you do all day? Well, we, depending on our state of uh, cure, depending on our injury, but we had to go to rehab, we had to go through exercises, surgery, what have you it is. In my case, all of my surgery was behind me and this was rehab time. For him, surgery was still ahead of him. In my case, it's simple, take care of this and that's it. You know, the other things just healed by itself. But in his case, it took time because what they were trying to do was to restore some life in a dead limb. I hate to put it that way, but yeah. Yeah. that's what it is. Yeah. Did, did he have a sense of humor then? Not as much as she has it here. At that time, he was at times morose. And all I can imagine, because he was a guy who was ambitious and who knew what he wanted, and he found himself in this condition, not knowing whether he's going to make it or not, but I think it's that drive that kept him going. And that existed before the war, you think? Is that something that uh, the war sharpened? I think the war did. I didn't know him before the war, actually. But uh, when we got here and found ourselves together, I watched him operate, and it was different from the hospital. Here he was standing up, walking, you know, tall, good-looking, personable, at times can be very charming. And as many of us would say, it takes two to tango. But he was the one who went out and asked for the tango. See, right now, we all know it takes two to tango. The leadership knows that. But one has to make the move. Yeah. Bob Dole, if he thought that the move was necessary, did not hesitate. I, I'm very proud to have a role in 
in uh, building the World War II Memorial. And all these fellows here, I think, probably made contributions, and, and we're still accepting contributions, though we don't really need the money. Uh, <laughs> it goes into preservation fund. We have enough money left over after having built the memorial. We have about 20 million left over to take care of the memorial for the next 10, 15, 20 years. And if you haven't been there, if your father's still living or mother's still living and they served in World War II, you owe it to them to take them back there and see this magnificent structure. Father's Day is coming up. Mother's Day is May the 8th. There are a lot of big Memorial Day coming up. Veterans Day will be here before we know it. And it's probably right now the busiest memorial in Washington, D.C. Someone said it looked like something Mussolini built. And I was offended by that at first, and I found out he was one of the architects who didn't get the job so I could understand his reservations about it. But it is a wonderful, uh, it's cost a total of about $170 million. But the good part of it is we didn't run to the government and say, give us the money, we want to build this edifice. We said, let's see if we can't raise it privately. If we can't, then we'll go to the government. The government gave us $5 million in startup money. They paid for the dedication. The rest, which is about $150, 60000000 million, uh, came from people like you all over America. We had 600,000 contributors. Uh, we had uh, one fellow sent a check. He called me one day and said, where do I send money for the memorial? His name was Sarkis Sakopian, an Armenian-American. And I, we told him, and a week later, I, my Joyce McClooney in my office came running the office and sold me a check for $1 million, the largest single contribution as it turned out, he wasn't a veteran. He was 73 years of age. He came to this country. He wasn't flat broke. But he started a little business, and he said, I owe this to that generation. Because had it not been for that generation, I wouldn't have had a business. I wouldn't have made a profit. And I said, boy, for all the money you've given us, would you like to have a seat at the dedication? And I said, for a million dollars, you can have my seat at the dedication. <laughs> But it just demonstrates that people like Sarkis Sakopian, who's 73 years of age, came to this country as an immigrant, uh, school children, you know, every, every, Legion, VFW, disabled American veterans, and we think it's uh, going to be there for the ages and there for generations to come. In the first week of January 1945, a hungry and lonesome second lieutenant from small-town Kansas dispatched a message to his folks back home. You can send me something to eat whenever you're ready, he wrote. Send candy, gum, cookies, cheese, grape jelly, popcorn, nuts, peanut clusters, Vicks VapoRub, peanut, uh, wool socks, wool scarf, fudge cookies, ice cream, liver and onions, fried chicken, banana cake, milk, fruit cocktails, Swiss steaks, crackers, more candy, lifesavers, peanuts, the piano, the radio, the living room suite, and the record player, and Frank Sinatra. I guess you might as well send the whole house if you can get it into a five-pound box. P.S. Keep your fingers crossed. In authoring that only slightly exaggerated wish list, I merely echoed the longings of 16 million Americans whose greatest wish was for an end to the fighting. And 60 years on, our ranks have dwindled for the thousands assembled here on the mall and the millions more watching all across America in living rooms and hospitals and wherever it may be. 
and overseas, our men and women overseas, and our friends in Great Britain and our allies all around the world, our final reunion cannot long be delayed. Yet if we gather, gather in the twilight, it is brightened by the knowledge that we have kept faith with our comrades from a distant youth, sustained by over 600,000 individual contributions, 600,000. We have raised this memorial to commemorate the service and sacrifice of an entire generation. What we dedicate today is not a memorial to war, rather is a tribute to the physical and moral courage that makes heroes out of farm and city boys, that inspires Americans and every generation to lay down their lives for people they will never meet, for ideals that make life itself worth living. This is also immoral to the American people, who in the crucible of war forged a unity that became our ultimate weapon. Just as we pulled together in the course of a common threat 60 years ago, so today's Americans united to build this memorial. Small children held their grandfather's hand while dropping pennies in a collection box. Entire families contributed in memory of loved ones who could win every battle except the battle against time. I think of my brother Kenny and my brothers-in-law, Larry Nelson and Alan Steele, just three among the millions of ghosts in navy blue and olive drab we honor with this memorial. And of course, not every warrior wore a uniform. As it happens, today is the 101st birthday of Bob Hope, the GI's favorite entertainer who did more to boost our morale than anyone next to Betty Grable. And I can already hear Bob, but I was next to Betty Grable. And it's hard to believe, but today is also the 87th birthday of John F. Kennedy, a hero of the South Pacific who a generation after the surrender documents were signed on board the USS Missouri, spoke of a new generation of Americans tempered by war that was nevertheless willing to pay any price, to bear any burden, to meet any hardship, support any friend, oppose any foe, to assure the survival and the success of liberty. And we shall honor, always honor the memory of our great leader and our American hero, General Eisenhower, who led us to victory all across the world. As we meet here today, young Americans are risking their lives in liberty's defense. They are the latest link in a chain of sacrifice older than America itself. After all, if we meet the test of our times, it was because we drew inspiration from those who had gone before, including the giants of history who are enshrined on this mall. From Washington, who fathered America with his sword and ennobled it with his character. From Jefferson, whose pen gave eloquent voice to our noblest aspirations. From Lincoln, who preserved the Union and struck the chains from our countrymen. And from Franklin Roosevelt, who presided over a global coalition to rescue humanity from those who had put the soul itself in bondage. Each of these presents was a soldier of freedom. In the defining event of the 20th century, their cause became our cause. On distant fields and fathomless oceans, 
the skies over half a planet and in 10,000 communities on the home front, we did far more than avenge Pearl Harbor. The citizen soldiers who answered Liberty's call fought not for territory, but for justice, not for plunder, but to, li to liberate enslaved peoples around the world. In contending for democracy abroad, we learned painful lessons about our own democracy. For us, the Second World War was in effect a second American revolution. The war invited women into the workforce. It exposed the injustice visited on African Americans, Hispanics, and Japanese Americans, and others, who demonstrated yet again that war is an equal opportunity employer. What we learned in foreign fields of battle, we applied in post-war America. As a result, our democracy, though imperfect, is more nearly perfect than in the days of Washington, Jefferson, Lincoln, and Roosevelt. That's what makes America forever a work in progress, a land that has never become, but is always in the act of becoming. And that's why the armies of democracy have earned a permanent place on this sacred ground. It is only fitting when this memorial was opened to the public about a month ago, the very first visitors were school children. For them, our war is ancient history, and those who fought it are slightly ancient themselves. Yet in the end, they are the ones for whom we built this shrine, and to whom we now hand the baton in the unending relay of human possibility. Certainly the heroes represented by the 4,000 gold stars on the Freedom Wall need no monument to commemorate their sacrifice. They are known to God and to their fellow soldiers who will mourn their passing until the day of our own. In their names, we dedicate this place of meditation. And it is in their memory that I ask you to stand, if possible, and join me in a moment of silent tribute to remind us all that at some time in our life, we have or may be called upon to make a sacrifice for our country to preserve liberty and freedom. has been reporting we're learning the sad news that this morning former republican senator and presidential candidate bob dole has died he was 98 years old bob dole an american war hero longtime senator and giant of republican politics for decades born in lawrence kansas and you know he never left those midwest values behind hello everyone and welcome to fox news live on this sunday i'm eric sean hi arthur 
Hi, Eric. Uh, I'm Arthel Neville. Senator Dole served as senator from Kansas from 1969 to 1996 at a time when uh, he was the Senate Majority Leader, of course. He famously ran against Bill Clinton during the 1996 presidential election. Uh, Special report anchor Brett Baer right now takes a look back at the life and legacy of Bob Dole. I've never been prouder in my life than to have been the Republican nominee for president of the United States. As the 1996 Republican nominee, Bob Dole came as close as he ever would to winning the presidency, a dream he chased three times. He made his concession speech in Russell, Kansas, to the people who had known him since his birth there in 1923. World War II took Dole from Kansas to Italy, And just before the end of the war, Nazi machine gun fire shattered his upper body and destroyed his right shoulder. It was about 11 months, I think, before I could feed myself. I think I could have done it, frankly, very honest about it, probably at eight months. But the nurses were very attractive. (laughs) After his recuperation, Russell elected Dole to four terms as county prosecutor. And in 1961, its voters sent him to the House of Representatives and re-elected him there four times. In 1968, Dole ran for Senate and won, spending the next three decades in the U.S. Senate. He became the Senate Majority Leader in 1984. With an acerbic and often self-deprecating wit, he established himself as a tireless power broker, pragmatic and able to work out compromises with Democrats. In 1976, presidential candidate Gerald Ford had selected Dole as his running mate. After their defeat, Dole sought his own nomination for president unsuccessfully in 1980 and 1988. But in 1996, he decided to try again. He resigned his Senate seat and post as majority leader to focus on the campaign. The new season before me makes this moment far less the closing of one chapter than the opening of another. Finally, in 1996, Dole won the Republican nomination. I accept your nomination to lead our party once again to the presidency of the United States. On the campaign trail... We're going to win today, Senator. We're going to win. Right, looking good. 73-year-old Dole's boundless energy overshadowed his age. I think I have my strengths. I think the best thing going for Bob Dole is that Bob Dole keeps his word. Ultimately, though, Americans chose to re-elect Bill Clinton. After the election, Dole remained prominent in more ways than one. He lent his image to big-name products like Viagra and Pepsi. I feel like a kid again. He wrote several books, including an autobiography. Shortly after Dole's loss to Clinton, he visited the White House, where his former opponent awarded him the Presidential Medal of Freedom. No one can claim to be equal to this honor. It was at the same ceremony that President Clinton announced the design of a new World War II memorial a site that Dole would go on to visit on a regular basis, arranging travel for fellow World War II veterans to do the same. Yet he still never completely left the political world. Now that I'm out of work, I watch the Senate a lot. (laughs) He spent his time helping his wife Elizabeth win a Senate race and accepting an appointment from President George W. Bush to co-chair a commission on problems at a military hospital. Senator Dole, who... Uh, is himself a veteran and a wounded veteran at that, 
former distinguished senator, a man who knows Washington well, but more importantly knows the kind of questions they ask. He continued to push for answers on Capitol Hill as well, traveling there in support of legislation for disabled veterans. Just the right thing to do. And advocating for politicians who share his vision like Kansas Senator Pat Roberts, also urging Congress to confirm Mike Pompeo as the head of the CIA and Robert Lighthizer as a trade representative. So I'm very proud to be here because I know this man and I know he'll do a great job. One trip back to the Capitol was much tougher for him to make. In 2012, Dole entered the Capitol Rotunda to visit the casket of his friend, colleague and fellow World War II veteran, Senator Daniel Inouye of Hawaii, as he laid in state. The pair met while recovering from combat injuries during World War II. They had both been sent to the same hospital in Michigan after suffering injuries from Nazi gunfire in Italy. There, Dole convinced Inouye to go into politics after the loss of his arm dashed his dream of becoming a surgeon. And Inouye did, making it to Washington as a Hawaii representative in 1959. Seven months later, Dole made it to the Capitol himself. A wheelchair-bound Dole needed the help of his wife Elizabeth and an aide to take the steps on his own feet. Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid of Nevada later said Dole told him he wasn't going to let Inouye see me in my wheelchair. At 95 years old, he returned to the Capitol Rotunda again, standing from his wheelchair to salute another fellow soldier from the greatest generation, the 41st President of the United States, George H.W. Bush, a longtime friend. That determination is how Senator Dole earned respect from both sides of the aisle. We're also proud to be joined by a true American patriot, uh, a World War II veteran, one of the finest public servants America's ever known, uh, Senator Bob Dole. Senator Dole fought bravely in World War II and was severely wounded by German fire. And Bob, I know I speak for millions of grateful Americans when I say thank you. Thank you, Bob. Some of those grateful Americans were his own Kansas constituents. They continued to attend his speeches years after he left public office. Well, that's another bill that I was very proud of, and that's helping get the American Disabilities Act passed. But a more permanent reminder of the former majority leader from Kansas is back on Capitol Hill, a place he could never seem to leave. I may run again, so I'll probably be up here looking for bipartisan support. <laughs> there on the Senate side of the Capitol, a balcony named after him when he left the Senate in 1996, just steps from the Republican leader's office. Will it be in big letters or neon? Or <laughs> During Dole's tenure, his colleagues had informally referred to the balcony as Dole's Beach, as he frequently held meetings there. But on his last day as senator, his colleagues voted to make it official. Senate Resolution 258 to designate the balcony adjacent to rooms S-230 and S-231 of the United States Capitol Building as the Robert J. Dole Balcony. But I object to the resolution, Victor. The Robert J. Dole Balcony is a tribute to the service he made within the halls of Congress, but also to his membership in the dwindling group of Americans who served their country in World War II.
Because out of the 16 and a half million World War II veterans, there are only about a half million of us left. And we lose about a thousand a day. In early 2021, Dole shared that he had been diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. In a statement, he said, quote, while I certainly have some hurdles ahead, I also know that I join millions of Americans who face significant health challenges of their own. Days later, he was visited by newly inaugurated President Joe Biden at his Watergate apartment. The two had a bipartisan friendship and served in the Senate together for almost 25 years. Months before his cancer announcement, Dole spoke remotely to the National Press Club about reaching across the aisle and his hopes for America. And I had a great ride. I mean, I made so many, many friends, Democrats and Republicans. And when I was the leader, I reached across the aisle a lot because I believe the most controversies could be settled with a little time and a little compromise. I believe God has a plan for all of us. And it's up to God or whatever happens to me. I'm 97, but I still have all my marbles. And uh, that helps. But I think we have a bright future. In Washington, Brett Baer, Fox News. And God did have some plan for Bob Dole. His loss went for our country. He was a man of principle, dedication, who overcame tremendous personal setbacks, a severe injury. But also he was a man of cutting humor and optimism. Our thoughts are now from Fox News with his family, his wife, former senator and cabinet member Elizabeth Dole now is the candidate who wasn't seen, the candidate who wasn't heard, the unremarked moments of 96. In a campaign of sharp edges and loud firecrackers, what lingers now are the quiet kindnesses. A note to a Secret Service agent dealing with a family tragedy. A call to the reporter hospitalized when a dole bus came to a slamming stop. Birthday wishes and pictures offered to anyone who marked the day along the trail. The barriers he went through or over to talk to and touch anyone with a disability. The Secret Service driven crazy as he walked through kitchen galleys en route in an event, stopping at every corner to shake hands with the cooks, the waiters, the busboys. In a campaign that never had enough time, he didn't want anyone to think they were not worth some of his. What lingers now is not the public struggle of 96, but the private struggle of a lifetime. The hour at each end of the day needed to dress and undress. The apologies as the natural right-hander signed autographs with his left. I don't write so well, he would say. The terrifying moments when a a fan oblivious to Dole's physical limitations almost literally tossed him a baby. The man who asked an aide before the first debate to read aloud his closing statement. To remember, he needed to hear. It is how he has coped. In an era of carefully scripted candidates, what lingers now is a candidate who hated the packaging and broke loose in ways both big and small. The man who saw the arrows marking his exit route and left in the opposite direction. Who noted masking tape showing where he should stand and stood somewhere else. The candidate who routinely ignored staff pleas to get on the plane while he scanned the outer edges of the tarmac, looking to reach out to anyone too timid to come to him. The man who took years from the life of his teleprompter operator, ignoring what was on the screen, saying what he wanted. What lingers now are not the pensive times of an uphill struggle, but the whimsical moments, the laughter. What lingers most of all is not the destination, but the journey. I've never been prouder in my life than to have been the Republican nominee for President of the United States. 
Andy Crowley, CNN, Washington. So 400,000 killed in World War II. And so you ought to stand there and look at the gold stars and you know, think about sacrifice. In other words, what people did, they gave up their lives to save our country. Thank you for listening to Bridging the Political Gap. If you've liked what you've heard, please share it. And we would love to hear from you and your thoughts on on our show. So if you'd like to, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast. And until next time, thanks again and so long for now.